Hello, you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology and I'm joined today by Professor Roger Staley of Trinity College Dublin and the author of a honestly fantastic publication, Early Irish Sculpture and the Art of the High Crosses. And I'm delighted to be talking to Roger today all about Ireland's High Crosses and Roger, you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Neil. Um, we might start, I suppose, with the at the beginning, what are the origins of Ireland's high crosses? Are, are they kind of, um, uh, we tend to think of them as a very iconic feature of early Irish Christianity. Are they a uniquely Irish phenomenon in, in the style or uh, what, what kind of origins and influences do we have here? Well, they are, they're not quite uniquely Irish, but certainly, you know, they're associated with Ireland far more than any other area of Europe, and certainly now associated with Ireland in the popular mind. But of course, a lot of that has to do with the uh, revival in the 19th century. So when the cross, the Celtic cross, and I'm thinking here of the, the cross with the ring, uh, which is the kind of key component in a way, um, that became a symbol of Irish nationalism. So it spread all over the world. But actually, if you go back, um, and look in the early Middle Ages, um, and we're thinking particularly, I think, of stone crosses. And yeah, I'd insist on stone crosses. Uh, they are really very, fairly specifically Irish. But I draw a distinction between the cross, the Celtic cross, as it's called, in stone, and the Celtic cross as a design, because the actual notion that it's kind of almost like a symbol, the cross with the circle around it, goes back far earlier. And um, probably right back to the first centuries of Christianity. And it has, I think, a very interesting origin because where did the circle come from? Well, you know, there were a few ideas which nobody believes now that they, they put the ring in to support the cross arms. But it's, it's long before that, the idea of putting a circle around the cross was there. And it's important to remember that in the Roman or the Greek and Roman world, it, um, it really, when they first added it to the cross, it was a wreath. And when you think of wreath of flowers and fruit, that's what was given to the rewards of all the great, particularly in, you know, sports, athletics and so on. And it was a sign of victory. So that's how it came to be associated with the cross. It was put around the cross to show that Christ's death on the cross had been a victory, a victory over death. So it was a kind of victorious uh, symbol. So you see that uh, associated with the crosses, not even exactly the same way on some of the Roman sarcophagi of the fourth and fifth century. But uh, the person who was really interested in this was Helen Rowe. You know, she was obviously one of the, the great antiquarians of, of 20th century Ireland. And she wrote one or two very interesting articles because she was convinced the design, the Celtic cross design must have come out of the early Christian world but she could never really pinpoint exactly the whole thing having come together. And then just a few years before her death, um, amazing discovery or revelation really, from of all places, Minneapolis. Now in Minneapolis wouldn't be the place you first place you think of going to look, find stuff about Irish crosses, but they suddenly produced a, an Egyptian textile of the sixth century, and there is the Celtic cross, there is the Irish cross, a, you know, a Latin cross with, with, 
the circle. In this case, it is a wreath. You can see the fruit and flowers. But what makes it really striking is the bottom of the cross has a peg which goes into a big solid base. So it's not just the cross, but of course with the Irish cross, you have this massive stone base as well. And that is all there. And so that raises huge questions. Was this well known across the, you know, the late Roman world? Um, there are not many, it's hard to find other examples. Um, and then you have a, an issue with, well, were they made, did we get freestanding examples in wood? And, you know, there's quite a lot of debate about that. They're not, it, it, it doesn't, the form doesn't really lend itself very well to wood because you've got curves and you've got to put in, you've got to peg in the, the actual circle into the arms. And certainly uh, there's Robert Stebick who looked at very hard at the geometry of the crosses. He was convinced that the stone examples weren't really dependent on the on wooden ones, but we don't really know. So sort of jumping ahead, I would say the big, the big issue, which nobody has an answer to, is when was the first freestanding cross in stone erected in an Irish context? Because that must mark the big, the big moment. Now the Scots are all very keen on Iona and they insist it was in Iona. And maybe they're right, because I think it would have been a major monastery like that that set an example. But they have uh, there in Iona, St. John's Cross, but it's in bits now, but well, it's placed in, in concrete. I mean, they've got a concrete version of it. But uh, there you've got a stone cross where the actual parts of the ring are made of separate pieces and locked in as if they are timber. So they were suggesting, well, that was the transition. I don't see it that way. I see that as uh, an example in Iona where they didn't have any decent stone. And so they just had to make it up from bits and pieces. Um, but, you know, you can argue about that. But certainly by about 800, they must be making, you know, both, uh, I suspect, in Western Scotland and in Ireland, they must be making freestanding crosses of, uh, crosses of stone. Now, just to be clear on this, of course, the Anglo-Saxons had stone crosses, but they didn't go in for this the distinctive form that I'm talking about with the ring. So I think, I mean, the late 1980s and that discovery in Minneapolis, wow, that was quite something. No, absolutely. And, and it's very interesting to kind of think about what sort of our crosses might be the earliest. I know there's kind of, there's been so much debate about it. I think uh, Brian Lacey was suggesting um, the, the cross up at, at Rye Church in Donegal might be particularly early as well. And um I, you know, I, I've heard a henny perhaps being an early one. Yeah, with a henny, it's interesting because um, if we go back several decades and the way people try to organise the chronology, it was very much done on an evolutionary basis, as if you spent over perhaps over two, three hundred years, the cross evolved in Ireland. And uh, there was this notion uh, particularly with regard to the Aheni group, which of course are just covered largely just with abstract ornaments, spirals, interlaced, and so on. Um, the idea was that the figure cult sculpture was a later addition, and that this 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 type of cross must be early. And there's you know plenty of support for that because the actual uh, designs that they've got there, and I'm thinking particularly of the spiral one and so on, 
equates quite well with eighth century metalwork and so on. So you could see why they would argue for that. But actually, if you look at it in a more technical, practical way, those crosses are quite tricky to do, to make. The, the depth of the carving, the way they're put together is in a way just as sophisticated as the ones but hitherto dated 200 years earlier. And I think now most people would accept that we've got to look much more in terms of regional groups. And it's, it's very much the Henny group. And as you know, there are a group of several crosses, very similar form in that area. And there's something in that area which makes that the example to follow. And it might be a highly venerated metal cross, which itself went back to the eighth century, but it doesn't mean to say the copy of it. Of it were. So, you know, there's a bit of a question mark over really whether the Aheni crosses are as early as perhaps hitherto imagined. And it was always a rather strange thing that we'd suddenly kind of imagine things got better and better over 200 years. And you've got this outlier in, in, in the Aheni area, and then it's a hundred years before Mollister Boyce and Carol start doing anything, if you see what I mean. So it doesn't really make sense. And it's if you look at later periods of sculpture, I'm thinking particularly the Romanesque, you, you can plot there much more, it's easier to do. You'd see how you really do work in local groups about it around influential monasteries or other settlements. And I think that's the way we've got to look at the Irish crosses. I, I think that's so interesting. I never kind of considered uh, the Aheni, the Ossery series, I think they're called, aren't yeah. they? Um, being inspired by one particularly venerated cross that might be older than the, the rest of them. That's really interesting because you're right, it is. They are incredibly intric intricately carved. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you compare them to, say, uh, the cross, uh, and, and we'll get into favourite crosses a little bit later, but, <laughs> but Aheni is one very, my other favourite is the other end of the spectrum at Khan Dunna. Again, up in Donegal. And that's, if you told me that could be the earliest, I could say, oh, yeah, well, that is a very simple sort of carving. And, you know, it, it's very different to kind of the, the depictions you see, you know, with Monaster Boyce and such. Sure. It's very interesting to think about that and, and the regionality of style. Yeah. And of course, regionality will depend to some extent too on geology and the type of stone you can. So, you know, in some cases you could only perhaps extract what are relatively thin slabs. Whereas one of the very striking thing, I mean, it's true to consider extent with ossuary, they're quite thick. They need to be because all the various levels they've got. And, uh, you know, Muradat's cross at Modest Voice is a whopper. That's a foot and a half thick. So that's a very deep bed of stone. So, you know, you've got local geology, which, clearly played a part, you know, in, in how things were done. Uh, absolutely. And, and actually on that subject, do you know, how were they typically made? Did, was it all about just what was locally sourced or do you see a great variety in materials across the country? Um, or, or were they particularly looking for, a, you know, granite or sandstone? Were they, were they yeah, sandstone was clearly the favoured one, if you can get sandstone, because it was easier to carve. Um, granite is tough. And, uh, and what I think isn't always appreciated is that you carve granite or you cut granite in a somewhat different way, because you literally have to kind of punch it, you know, straight on. Um, whereas, of course, with sandstone, you can imagine using a chisel or a punch at an angle and taking it away. So they're not 
you know, it's not a simple choice between granite and sandstone. They employ from the sculptor, you know, somewhat different techniques and experiences. But clearly the granite one's very much centred on the Wicklow hills and, and uh, the valleys and so on around. Um, but um, the in most cases, certainly, and this is true in England, the assumption is the stone came from fairly close to the locality. But this is interesting because it may mean where you've got... Uh, a fair number of crosses. You may have a quarry nearby, which is a, you know, the quarry may be the key thing, which is actually stimulating the development. And for a long time, I mean, almost ever since they've been discovered, the, the modest of boys crosses, people wanted to know where did this stone come from? Because it is, it is the perfect stone for, for exterior carving, stone carving, because it's sandstone, but it's quite tough and it's got quartz in it and you can see the glint you know, in some of the stone, it's and it, and it and the fact that it survives so well to this this day, and um, you know, in times gone by, Francois Henri kind of vaguely referred it came from somewhere near Drauda, but you know, the advantage of being in a university is you have geologists on hand, so you can go and pester them, and uh, which I'm afraid I did mercilessly, and uh, uh, and then I was told, well, there was an old view that uh, that stone may have come from Carrick which is a site just outside Nobber. And it's a sandstone hill actually, which became, it became a major industrial center in the 19th, 20th century and was worked until a few years ago. And, um, but of course, how do you prove it? Well, what you really need then is samples, but it's obviously not really a practical proposition to go and take a piece, but then, um, it, 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 you know, I had a good idea in a way, which was that I knew one or two fragments had been found from uh, Monaster Boyce, and they were now in the National Museum. So eventually we got permission to sample those. Now, of course, just because that's another cross at Monaster Boyce doesn't mean to say it's the same stone, of course, as used in the, in the, in the big crosses that survived. But when that was analysed, it turned out that the stone was absolutely consistent with the sort of stone you've got at uh, Carrick Leck. And of course the very name Carrick Leck, Carrick Leck means stone bed. So the name clearly, it's a very ancient quarry. Now, once you've got the quarry, and it was, it was further away than I thought, and it's over 20 kilometers and it's not an easy route because there's no, you know, you could, you know, well, you could use the boy maybe a bit, but still that's not going to help very much. Um, but uh, then, you know, with again with a, a, a colleague from the geology department, he came round with me on that. We had one or two day trips now looking at crosses, and he was fairly convinced the Kells crosses are from the very same quarry, which makes sense because they're actually nearer than and and a number of others. So we suspect that it's the quarry which is key. Whereas in the past, everybody thinks of the the monastery or the ecclesiastical site being, you know, where it all starts. But what the quarry has to do is produce stone, you know, sufficient scale and size. And that's clearly what they could do at uh, Carrick Lek. But then, of course, you've got the problem of how to get it to the site. And one well, thing you don't do, I think, is just take a huge block of stone to the site because you could halve the weight if you actually carve it at the quarry, which is one of the big points I tried to make in the book that I think an awful lot of activity went on at the quarry. And it must mean too, I think, that the design 
the overall design must have been laid out at the quarry, which means that the master, whoever he was in charge, he was at the quarry too. And who knows, he may even have been the, the quarrier. That is very interesting. And, and let's talk about that person. You know, I mean, to me, like a, a layman, you look at something like the Monaster Boys crosses or, or, or any of the other really high crosses, the any ones, as we said, and it looks like an incredibly specialised skill. The artistry it, it is yeah. phenomenal. Can we see any kind of evidence of um, individual artists or sculptors that have done more than one, let's say, or is that kind of more lost to us? Is there any kind of signature artistic style, for example? I think there is. I think it's just staring you in the face and people have been a bit reluctant to recognise it because most studies have been done monument by monument, you know, without... And the the place to start, and that's why I did start with Muridat's um, Cross at Modest Boys because it's so well-preserved, and the individual approach, style of carving that you see there is so individualistic. It's full of little details. You love details. Beards, swords, brooches, all kind of well worked out. But it's not just that. It's also that the sculptors carve quite deeply. So there's a very full sense of relief. You know, the figures look really rounded and they look, they're quite natural in, uh, in proportion. And uh, they walk around the place. You know, there's lots of energy. And, and then it, I think there's lots of uh, wit and amusement and lots of clever touches because again another thing which in the, the thing is dominated in when the past oh there must be a source for this you have to go looking for the source wherever it is you know in europe or wherever but we've got to give credit these guys were you know they had imagination themselves and they were doing in, in a way a very odd thing applying all this sculpture to uh, to to a cross so and this is where, of course, digital photography really came to one's aid because now you can just take hundreds of photographs, which I did, of this, and then went round to a series of other crosses. And I think the six or seven by the same guy. Now, I'm not saying he did every bit of the, the carving. There is no question that he did Clomac Noise, the cross of the scriptures, because it's not just the style of the carving. It re repeats little details, but it's also... A lot of the subjects are just taken straight over at Clonmac Noise and a bit reduced. It's a smaller block and it's a, not such a good stone at Clonmac Noise, but, you know, you can see that. And then I'm convinced, too, that the tall across to the west in, in Monaster Boys, all the same details are there. So you've got a pattern. And that's why I called him the Rurdat Master. And I, I think he's... It's a good place to start with trying to think about the Irish crosses because in most cases, as I was saying earlier, we don't know when really how they evolved dates and things like that. But with this group, we do, because thanks to the name Muridak on the cross, we know we're in the period around 900 or just shortly afterwards. So that's they're the fixed point you've really got in the whole discussion of Irish crosses. So I think he's a great master, and and it's worth bearing in mind nine hundred. There's there's no serious stone sculpture going on anywhere else in Europe. The the great era of Anglo-Saxon carving early is over, and you know the 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 uh, the Carolingian Empire is disintegrated. There's no carving there. So this guy was, I assume he was a man. I must be careful, but but we have no. I mean the assumption would I think perhaps justifiably be that he was. 
But the one thing people often say, well, surely it's a team, it's a workshop. And that I'm not very happy with that term, workshop, because that's that's an art historical term from um, the Renaissance, you know, where you have Raphael and you have half a dozen people working in his studio learning to do this, that and the other. And there's no evidence that that's how these people worked. And if you talk to individual sculptors, as I have done, and you say, well, how long would it take one person to do most of this carving? I mean, obviously, he's got to have help. But, you know, I think the bulk of the work could be done in a year or so, a year or two. And so six or seven crosses over a lengthy period is not, not too much to, to, to expect. And particularly, I, I think he was so exceptional that when he appeared on the scene, everybody wanted to cut of the action. If Monaster Boys had got one, Kells was going to get one, or maybe Kells came first, you know, and then the High King wanted one for Clum McNoise. You know, so it's... It's uh, interesting, actually, just, just as you say that then, um, you know, the, 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 the crosses at Kells, you mentioned Iona before, we talked about a, a couple of sites in Donegal. Were the high crosses a Columban, a Colmkill, familiar uh, kind of, in, not invention, but were they the driving force? Did they set the pattern? Do you well, I think they're certainly one of the, the, the key, among the key players. Yeah, no doubt about it. Because it's very interesting because I, 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 I'm one of these who believe the Book of Cows was made in, in Iona and brought to Ireland probably in 878 or thereabouts, along with relics of, of Columba. Now, the crosses that we're talking about at Kells all seem to follow that within a decade or two, as if that's the moment when Kells is really taking over, as it were, and dominating the uh, Columban Affiliation Federation. And so you can see that crosses became part of the, the status of the, of the monastery. And I think that continued to be the case. Uh, you know, they were a way that important monasteries, you know, really demonstrated their, their importance. And you can see that right through in the 12th century when uh, there was all this jostling for bishoprics and archbishoprics. And, of course, Tuam was, didn't, wasn't initially an archbishopric. And... Uh, Sterling O'Connor was argued, of course, that that it should become an archbishopric, and coinciding with it, eventually, of course, succeeded. Uh, but but coinciding with that, they they had no earlier crosses, as far as we know, and suddenly they start putting up twelfth century crosses, almost as if to show they could equate with some of the major sites, be they Clonmac Noise or Kells or or whatever. I mean, the big, the missing, really big missing ones is Armagh. And would love to know a bit more. I mean, there's a, 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 a very impressive cross made out of one massive piece of stone uh, at our, but it's very badly damaged. And it's not, hesitate to see this, but it's appallingly, uh, um, you know, shown in the, it's in a corner of the cathedral. The lighting is awful and, and it's in bits and it's been put together incorrectly. Um, but, you know, there's a big question there about, Armagh and its importance and influence in, in the whole development. It's very interesting. Going back, I suppose, to, to talk about the, the, the sculptors themselves, what do you think would be in the toolkits of a sculptor like a master that, that did uh, Murdoch's Cross? Well, I think 
the first thing you have to remember, they're engineers because they were transporting this stuff. And a lot of stone was moved by poles and things like that, you know, just shifted around and they had to have that skill at just handling it. Um, the next thing they needed to know about was rope. And people forget this, that rope must have played a huge part. And cranes, they, they, they must have been able to operate and know how to, uh, um, in particular, not just as they're carving, but if you think of the crosses, even Meridat's cross, you know, when it's carved, it's probably five tons, something like that. Now it's going, it's going to fit in a slot in a base. So you can't just sort of rotate it upwards and hope it just drops in fine. They don't got to work like that. It'll probably crack if you do it. It's got to be dropped vertically in. So that means you've got to have a, a huge hoist up above it. And then when you get to things like the tall cross at Monaster Boys, that has a high level joint. So you've got to put the first section in and then at, at a height, I don't know what it would be, it's certainly about, um, I don't know, two or three metres above the ground. Uh, you've got to drop another piece, the actual crosshead, into a slot there. So that means a crane, which would be a hoist, 30 feet at least. Now, that's big machinery, big engineering. So that's one whole side of it. Then I, actually for the carving, um, the tools are fairly, I think they're just what the Romans used, which would be the punch actually is, you know, a, a plain point tends to be the most important one. Then you get, um, obviously did, must have used chisels, but the one thing that people are always surprised about is the drill. They use drills. And you can, and one of the things to do when you're looking at a cross, particularly with interlace, look at the interlace. And if you look at the, the gaps between the, the strands of interlace, you'll see they're circular. And that's because the way they've been carved is something spinning inside them. In other words, if they've been cut with a flat tool, the chances are, you know, you'd see rough edges, but the circular is the telltale sign, of course, of the drill. And this is the thing called the, the pump drill. Uh, it's uh, very hard to explain how it works, but it's a bit like a yo-yo. You, you know, you have a spindle which has a rope around it and you whip a, a cross arm up and down and it spins it round. But then you see it, it's quite interesting too because one of the biggest challenges is with these ring crosses, you've got the gap between the circle and the main body of the cross. So how do you carve that? First of all, you've got to stop, avoid breaking it. You know, that must be very vulnerable. But if you start carving on one face, going right through to the other side, there's a 99% chance that you won't actually hit the right spot when you get through to the other side, if you see what I mean. And so <clears throat> um, clearly what they did was they went halfway or about a third or maybe two thirds one way and then turned it over. And the way you can tell that is if you get up and actually have a look through the armpits, if I can call them that, you can see sometimes there's a bend halfway through the armpits where, so what they've done is they've made sure if, they, if they're not going to go in the right direction, the joint is going to be hidden within the armpits. And of course, that's one of the places too where you can actually see some of the original tooling because it hasn't been exposed to the, the weather. That's very interesting. And I think, do you know, I, I often 
kind of feel that uh, I, I was lucky enough to excavate an early medieval mill that was very well preserved. And I often feel we don't talk enough about the engineering capabilities of people in early medieval Ireland. It was thinking about them hoisting such enormous pieces of stone uh, in, into place. And I imagine at that stage as well, it's very high stakes. As you say, it would have been largely dressed before it's at that point. It's the yeah. last time you want it to break. You know, you have to start again. So, um, yeah, it's astonishing to think about that. But you, but you see, that for me was a very important point which you just made there because the engineering or everything that was involved made me realise that these weren't commissioned by unassuming minor abbots or you know, people, these were quite big players who were organising all this because while I see one man essentially being in charge of the carving and perhaps the operation, at various points you're going to have to have minor armies, particularly in transporting. And even I like to think the moment of the lift, when you actually lift the pieces into place. And uh, sometimes, I mean, there must have been, breaks and uh, and I wonder about the unfinished cross I don't you know this at Kells I mean it was re-erected in the 1930 20th century but the um there that's got breaks in it and, and it was partly carved and you do just wonder whether that was a case where something went wrong while it was actually being uh, you know be, being carved but uh, certainly it's um you know there were big major operations which could go wrong no absolutely i i, I think it's it, it's marvelous to think about the the practical side of things uh, you know as you said at the outset we tend to get very focused on you know the the depictions and and the the biblical scenes and such but um thinking about how these things were actually made i yeah. think is very yeah. very interesting and think, thinking about kind of who who was the impetus behind this do you tend to feel that this was the abbots of extremely large and wealthy monasteries? Do you think it was often more secular figures like kings that were um, commissioning them? Who, who do you think was the who was paying for all of this labour and skill? Yeah. I suppose. Well, I think first of all, I, th I think we shouldn't draw too big a divide between church and state, secular and religious. You know, because the two are so closely entwine but i mean our best clue is to start with murdoch who leaves his name on Mur well who was murdoch well my god murdoch was one of the most powerful figures in uh, in northern leinster at the time because if you go to the annals when he died and they look at his obit and see what it says first of all he wasn't just abbot of of um monast boys he was a pluralist he was deputy abbot of armagh which was quite something. And then he's also described as the chief counsellor of all the men of Briga, in other words, the local kingdom. So whoever is the king of Briga, he's the, you know, he's the number one sort of advisor, civil servant, or call it what you will. And then he's also the steward of the high king, Flancina, of the O'Neill. And so he's got connections all over the place. And he's a, you know, he's a very big guy. And um, that's why. I have no doubt at all that it's he who who was responsible for this and you know gets the uh, gets the inscription. But then the next thing you say, well, what about cows? Well, at this very same time, 
they have another big player called Mel Brigton McTornan. And uh, he's also abbot of, he's another pluralist. He's also abbot of Armagh. So these guys are tying things up between themselves. And that's very interesting because, of course, you think of Armagh as part of the patrician, you know, uh, affiliations and so on. Uh, and, and, and Kells obviously is with Iona and Columba. And, um, you know, it, they're crossing those boundaries. And uh, so I think those two are thick together. Clearly they are. You know, they know each other. And so it's no surprise. And you see something like the Market Cross at Kells, quite similar in many ways to Muradat's Cross, because it's one whopping piece of stone. Now, the iconography is different, but, you know, and you can spot our man there, not in all the panels, I think, but you can certainly see he was present. And then finally, you've got Clonmac Noise. And there, of course, you've got inscriptions which mention Flan Sinner and Colmon, who was the abbot at the time. So you've got these nailed down very nicely. And, and you know, Muirdach is a, well, he's working at some level for Flansinna. And uh, so, you know, I see it's a network of really prominent figures who are maybe notionally in the church, but they're politicos. Let's make no mistake about it. And in Clement Noise, it's really interesting because on the cross there, I mean, it's a well-known panel facing the church where you've got this scene, which is almost certainly the foundation of Clonmac Noise. So you have what is a cleric there, and then you have a king with a long beard and so on. And that, I, I, I'm sure that's celebrating the foundation of Clonmac Noise. And of course it was founded by one of Flans Sinner's uh, ancestors. So that enhances that. And then of course, Kieran is the founding saint alongside. Now, whether, whether, um, the high king of the time, um, Dermot O'Carville, uh, really was responsible. Is a bit of an open was involved, but but they're kind of recording history, enhancing the status of Clonmac Noise, showing its several hundred years history back to an earlier high king. So it's very political. And then finally, on that, sorry, on on that, uh, at Clonmac Noise and at Kells and one or two other places, on the basis, you've got these scenes of uh, you've got, uh, an, uh, you know, armies or, or some sort of battle scene. You've got chariots, you've got riders, you've got hunting scenes. And there have been all sorts of very clever intellectual gymnastics to try and explain how they might have a religious connotation. They might be evoked in the Psalms. And okay, a pious monk might suddenly think that way. But think of your average person visiting Clonmac Noise or Kells and looking at that. What would they think of? They would think of the powers that be around the place right now. They would think of the local kings and so on. And almost as if they can see that the Christian cross is actually founded on the power of these people and the two are almost as one. It's incredible. I, I hadn't thought about it like that. We should be thinking about monopolies rather than monasteries. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, in terms of the kind of, you know, you touched on it a little there. In, in, in terms of the kind of things that crosses would typically depict, and, and we know that there's some regional variation, uh, but it comes to the crosses that depict biblical scenes, uh, are they showing 
are, are there more biblical stories prevalent than others, for example? I mean, Adam and Eve comes to mind that you could quite often see that one. Um, and does that, do you see that change over time, the, the stories coming in and out of fashion when it comes to the biblical aspect of it? Well, I'm not so sure they come in and out of fashion, but you're quite right. They vary, and certain crosses seem to have preferences, but there are quite clear patterns, more broad patterns, I think. Obviously, it's the Christian cross, so the crucifixion is going to be very prominent. And then that's salvation, salvation from sin, from original sin, so you're going to have Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve is really kind of almost, I won't say essential, but it, it's no surprise. It's a reminder of the sinfulness of man, I suppose, effectively. Um, and then obviously the crucifixion. And then the formula, which is widely adopted, is on the opposite side of the crucifixion, you have the last judgment. And the notion there is obviously a belief in Christ, a belief in the crucifixion is the means to salvation. But that salvation will really come at the end of time when Christ or the Messiah reappears at the end of time to judge, you know good and evil. So those two go often back to back, not always back to back. Um, so they're, you know, very key components across. But then uh, you get something which ultimately stems from um, early Christian thinking. One of the great issues in the early Christian world was to prove that Christ really was the promised Messiah. And so the theologians spent a lot of time pointing to incidents in the Old Testament, which seemed to foretell the coming of Christ and the miracles and so on of Christ. And so you get people like Daniel in the lion's den or Moses turning, uh, you, you know, getting water out of the rock in the, in the desert. Or David was another favorite sort of type for Christ. So you've got quite a series of those. And they're uh, what generally called typologies, you know, types of Christ are shown, but that's sort of a, a standard way of kind of proving that Christ was the Messiah. I think one area though that people have tended not to look at is I think there are quite a number of subjects which aren't necessarily biblical, but which show um, the really the overcoming of unbelief and heresy, disbelief. And I'm I've no proof of this, but I think at, on Murdat's cross at Monaster Boyce, there's a right on the top of the capstone there, there's a figure or there's a scene showing um, what obviously is some sort of cleric uh, using, using his staff, uh, and then there's a king falling backwards. And it's very hard to fit that into any biblical scene. And I think that's almost certainly the local saint, St. Buit, who, you know, it's a miracle because the one thing that you expect from your own saint, you know, obviously your, your, your founding saint, is that he was good at miracles. And so this is what you're, you're, I think you're, you're getting. And my, the, the, the most clearest case I think of this in terms of um, is, is it's old Kilcullen, where there's a subject which had always been interpreted in, in, Christ, in biblical terms, uh, which shows a guy with an axe standing over somebody lying prostrate there below, uh, prostrate below him. And, um, and then there's what is obviously a bell and a square, which is a book. And so it's a question, well, who is that? And it's been said, you know, he might, that might be Cain killing Abel and something like that. It's not because 
The founding saint of Kilcullen, Old Kilcullen, was a man called MacTall. Now, the Irish word tall means axe. So axe was his attribute. That's what he was associated with. And that clearly me, and you've got the, the, the bell, the book, and the crozier there as well. He's the founding, the founder of, and that's what they're celebrating there. And so if you begin to think a little bit more in those terms, and I go back to what I was saying earlier, these crosses are frequently, you know, they're there to extol the monastery, extol the ecclesiastical site. So it's no real surprise, I think, to find that. That's very interesting indeed. And um, I suppose one of the kind of common, I don't know if cliche is the proper word for it, but one of the, the common stories or interpretations you hear about the depiction shown on a cross is that they were for the benefit, they were depicting Bible, uh, biblical stories for the benefit of a, an illiterate population. Is that uh, a fair assessment, do you think, or is that a bit of a kind of misnomer? That's one of the biggest cons of the Middle Ages, because certainly at various points throughout the early Middle Ages, there was a lot of anxiety about all these images which were being produced. And they keep thinking of the commandments, thou shalt not worship a graven image, you know, and worries about uh, the masses, as it were, almost uh, you know, treating paintings as devotions, you know, and being uh, too consumed with that. And um, so and the, the key statement on all this, kind of uh, particularly for the Western Church, was the statement of Pope Gregory I in 600, when he said, well, paintings and images are fine to teach the illiterate what they should believe and what, you know, the basic of the, of the faith. And that then became the standard uh, argument which was used. So anybody who was going in for some fantastic expense, beautiful, I don't know, could be stained glass, sculpture, whatever, if there was any criticism or doubt, they quoted this. It's for the benefit of the illiterate. It was the kind of the cover story which they all use. But then if you actually start looking practically, well, it isn't quite as straightforward. I mean, look at stained glass, which can be 50 feet above you in a you know, Gothic church. You can't see it unless you've got binoculars. And then, uh, you know, in many cases, the circumstances are dark, or even you'll find the images are in parts of the building where the public are not actually allowed. And there's no doubt that I think that statement of the Pope Gregory became a convenient excuse for uh, spending lavishly on art. And I'm not saying that's the only reason, and I'm sure in Ireland, you know, the crosses could be used, but if they were really determined to teach the illiterate, you would have things, surely, biblical sequences. They're not, if you go to a cross, they don't come in a nice, convenient sequence or narratives. Even at, at Murnach's Cross, you know, you go, you've got Pontius Pilate around one corner and then you've got the flagellation on the other side. Then you have to keep moving all the way around to actually get any sort of sense of chronological uh, movement. So that's one thing. Of course, I mean, the weather is another, to put it mildly, you know, it wouldn't be ideal. And then in some cases, you know, when you go quite high up, You've got to stand well back, which is quite an interesting point, actually, because it shows that for the crosses to work, you have to have been, you know, standing at a distance. Now, I'm not saying for a moment 
that they weren't places of devotion and prayer and uh, and so on and and I'm sure ceremonies of one sort and another but the idea that they were some sort of simple teaching experiment I I just don't really buy that even if on you know one or two occasions there's another uh, reason I think that as well is that some of the panels are quite erudite and you know if you were going to explain that in very straightforward terms I'll give you um one example um is the second cross the tall cross at Monaster Boys the, the, and the crucifixion there is different noticeably different from on Murdoch's cross and that's I think because it was the second one and they weren't deliberate were not repeating but you've got two uh, either side of the crucified Christ, you've got two sheep or two little fellows with sheep. What are they doing there? Now, there have been some very curious interpretations of that, but actually all they are are references to a prophecy in the book of Isaiah saying, you know, talking about um, Christ or the Messiah, like lambs to the slaughter. And there's a lot of talk of the lamb, the idea of Christ being the sacrificial lamb. It's all there in Isaiah. And that's what they're referring to. Now, I'm not sure that would be a starting point for a completely illiterate crowd. So that's, I mean, it's beautifully done. And there's no obvious parallel for that. It's a very clever, imaginative way of doing it, but it shows the people they're most keen to impress are their peers, you know, people who are well-informed. And this is a standard thing throughout the study of medieval art. It's easier to understand what meaning the pictures, the images, and so on, would have for people who were knowledgeable and learned it, not nearly so easy to work out what it would have meant to those who really knew very little. That's very interesting. And I suppose what, one of the other debates, and we're thinking about the depictions of the, the crosses, one of the other debates that I've heard is to the degree whether they were painted, whether they were coloured. Yeah. Um, of course, because of the the grand soft Irish rain we don't we don't have any uh, I think uh, any evidence no. physical evidence left of that but do you believe that they were coloured or, or or not do you have a feeling on that I'm sure they were coloured the um, there's no, you're right there's no evidence no physical evidence whatsoever from Ireland uh, but you have got it from England and of course the Saxon crosses we know they were painted and uh, there you've actually got the fragments left. And uh, the reason they survived is simply because a number of those crosses were knocked down at the time of the Norman invasion and the stone reused as part of the fabric. So they'd only been outside for, what, a couple of centuries at most. And so when they've been found, uh, either, you know, in restorations or excavation, or whatever, you know, this, the bits of pigment have actually survived. So you've got hard evidence. And then in England, you've actually got some painted stone sculpture, uh, Deerhurst in Gloucestershire, for example, uh, which gives you some impression of what, uh, you know, might have been the, the case. So if, if the Anglo-Saxon ones were painted and then you wandered across to Ireland and you saw Irish crosses which were not painted, you say, well, these are very boring. You know, why are they, you know, so dull? And I think when you look too at some of the, for example, again, in Muradat's cross at Monastery Boys, you've got the nativity there. And just above the Virgin Mary and the Christ child, you've got a little circle, which is clearly a star. 
Now, you don't see it as that, but if that was painted, it surely would be. And I think it would be particularly highlights and details. I imagine, you know, on one side, there's a beautiful on cross is show, uh, Christ is shown as king of the Jews. So they give him a, a an Irish penannular brooch to show he was a king. And you can imagine that was going to be painted up. And then you've only got to think of interlace and and the way all those ornaments at Henny, for example, are taken from metalwork. They were really only half effective. I'm sure they were they were going to reproduce the metalwork. So what you had at Henny was a mega version of a you know a metal a beautiful jewel metal cross. So I think it only makes sense uh, to imagine they were. But um, you know the problem is. Uh, how intense was the colour? Was it just highlights? Because it would start to get very expensive, one would have thought, and the amount of pigment required. And then you've got another problem. How long would they last outside? You know, if it was painted, the colour surely would be going within a decade or two. And does that mean they had to be constantly repainted? I, I think that's an interesting question. I often think that... Kind of all generations now, we're very much of you do a job once and you want it to last as long as yeah. possible. Yeah. But if you go back a little way, I think people had a different feeling. Like um, I always like this is a mad tangent now, so sorry for this. But uh, I always liked Patrick O'Brien's books on the Napoleonic yeah. Wars, Aubrey and Latterin. And and every book he's talked about the every day the sailors are repainting the ship and yeah. doing up the. And I wonder would that be kind of it's almost a devotional practice to the thing you wonder yeah. whether yeah. the maintenance. That's the thing we don't value now is maintenance, and I wonder. It, it was that true in the past. I think once you put up a cross, you know, like the ones we've been talking about, that comes with an obligation to keep them. Um, and, but one wonders how long that lasted. And and what is intriguing, I think, is um, maybe in the first few decades, but did, you know, maybe there were other priorities, and particularly by the 12th century, when some of these sites you know, well, Monas Boyce's case in point, you know, seemed to have, you know, active monastic life seems to have largely vanished from them. So what happened then? And then well into the Middle Ages, you know, you ask, well, what did they make of them? And the interesting thing, too, is that in many cases, we struggle to understand what the subjects were. Well, how on earth did they know in the Middle Ages or, you know, even at the time when they've, because there were no inscriptions or anything on them to say, you know, this is David or Moses or anything like that. And that is a reason why I think that when those subjects were depicted on the crosses, they were familiar already. So people didn't need, and in other words, I think they're being drawn from possessions of the monastery. That might be panel painting, which we know existed, or it could be illuminated manuscripts but certainly the communities would be familiar enough. But then as time went by, that would all change. And so, you know, what, for example, in the 13th century did people make of the crosses? And it's kind of very interesting too, because when you get to the 18th century, a lot of the commentators, the early observers, they don't have a clue, not a clue what they're, now part of the problem is they're Protestants and they, they're not really into this thing. And there's that amazing statement uh, from Thomas, uh, what he quotes, going to Monaster Boyce and talking to the locals. And he doesn't have much of a clue what they represent. But 
his simple solution was that the locals said that these were all carved in Rome and brought to Ireland on the uh, command of the Pope. But it's very interesting, mean, because that's obviously a, a clear religious divide and prejudices coming, coming to bear. But on the other hand, it does show how difficult it is, still is, to interpret. But if we read that back into the early Middle Ages audience, you know, and how an audience looked at these things, and of course the audiences varied from the learned monk to presumably the common folk, particularly in some cases, could be no. For example, at Kells, it seems the market cross was on the, the boundary of one of the major sanctums of the, the monastery. So it, may, it seems to have been in public view. So it's, uh, I think, colour anyway, to go back to colour, I mean, there must have been very striking. You can get, I mean, perhaps some inkling because there have been, there's been lots of brilliant work done in recent years on conservation, usually with slightly later monuments. At Santiago de Compostela, for example, the great church there, um, the West Doorway is, you can still see the paint very clearly, and they've had a, a, a big project going on for quite a few years. But the problem there is that um, there's layer after layer, so that when when things been repainted, you, you don't always know whether it's re reflecting what was put there at the at the beginning. But I think one needs to pinch oneself and say that maybe you know the paint costs more than the <laughs> more than the more than the actual sculpture. But then you wonder about the. The, the sculptor having done all this work in stone and we think it would be terrible to have it all covered up with paint. But I mean, they must have just accepted that and maybe they did it themselves, I don't know. That's it. I mean, it, it's, it, it asks so many questions, doesn't it? I mean, it, it's hard to imagine though, at that same time, the contemporaries were producing works like the Book of Kells that are yeah. so colourful and so ornate and flamboyant yeah. that they'd be so restrained and austere with the sculpture. Exactly. You know? Exactly, you couldn't. I mean, think of Kells around 900. You know, with the book of Kells there, which is being shown to everybody like a relic, and then you just put boring plain sculpture up in the middle of the monastery. No, it, it had to be painted. One hates to think. But of course, I mean, this is not specific to Ireland and, and this period. Just think of Greek, Greek temples. I mean, and everybody, you know, think of all the Parthenon sculptures. And we know now that they were painted. So it's, you know, <laughs> we have to accept it. I, I wonder how our thinking has been kind of influenced by a kind of more austere Victorian kind of sense. <laughs> well, actually, you know, in some cases, Victorians were quite ready for plenty of, uh, I think it's a bit more recent than that, where we all went to sort of uh, the purity of the, purity of the form of the material you know is what we want to see and certainly if, if you're studying these things i mean it goes particularly for architecture the last thing you want to see is the the walls of the fabric covered with plaster and painting because then you can't see the sequence of building and all the other things you'd want to work out my, my students had a horrible habit of telling me that i always seem to prefer ruined buildings to complete buildings a very good reason for that. With ruined buildings, you can see exactly how they were constructed and how they were built. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no verges to contend with, too, either. <laughs> That's not. I mean, 
I, I suppose we've talked uh, a, a little bit about uh, Munich's Cross, and, it, and it's very much the focus of your book as well. I mean, it It's perhaps, you know, when we think of an Irish High Cross, it is, tends to be the one that comes to mind. What is it that makes that particular one so special? Is it the preservation? Is it the quality? Uh, or what sort of aspect do you think? Well, preservation, certainly, you know, it is... Some of those panels are wonderfully well preserved. Um, I think the massiveness of the undertaking, you know, just to tell people that that block once originally was the other way around, lay flat in the quarry and weighed 10 tonnes. And just think about, you know, the fact, you know, the engineering of it. But I agree with you on the quality of the carving. And we have to be a bit, bit you know, get into trouble often if you start making aesthetic judgments about, things a thousand years ago, how do we know what they thought was quality? Um, but we know they made our aesthetic judgments. There's plenty of that, you know, documented that there are individuals, you know, uh, extolling wonderful works of art for much the same reasons that we would do today. And I think it was admired for the skill of the carving because that's why I think this man got so much work. No, it, it, if it had been uh, not very attractive stuff, maybe it wouldn't have been so... Uh, so. And it, it's a lovely mixture of sort of naturalism, a little bit of naivety and charm, but a kind of very, very direct. And as I say, a lot of uh, amusing detail and imaginative detail. I mean, the uh, under the arms, the fact that you've got those entwined snakes around forming a frame around... Now, there's nothing quite like that that I know of anywhere else outside of Ireland and it was an adaptation of a of an idea which probably came from Italy but but you know it's very cleverly done and of course the idea of the hand you know the famous hand which appears to be well there's debate about this but it appears to be blessing as if you're kneeling there now a hand descending from heaven very common for example in Roman mosaics from fourth fifth century onwards just descending from them but this Guy very cleverly adapted that and put that. So it's, you know, there's a lot of ingenuity. And then, of course, you've got the beard pullers, which everybody loves. And my God, people have tried very hard to, oh, there must be a profound meaning. And one of the problems you have in the academic world, it's people are not very keen on humor because, you know, everything should be serious. And you've got to find a, a kind of very serious quasi-intellectual reason for something. And if you just say, well, it's a joke, you know, you, again, that's, that's not good enough. But, um, you know, you've got beard pullers over the, in the Book of Kells and in various other, you find them in Romanist churches. And, it's, and we don't know so little about the local society and what made people laugh. But I think looking back, people don't imagine that monasteries were bundles of fun. You know, people did laugh and you've got, I mean, in Ireland, you have rules and regulations against laughing. So clearly there were, you know, and you've only got to think of in some of the uh, the texts, you get these extraordinary little word games and letter games, you know, tricks. And so, you know, it, it, all I'm saying is, you see, I think you're seeing a different flavour of maybe life uh, coming through in uh, in Weirdat's Cross. Apart from the beard pullers, I'll, I'll be shot by a couple of friends if I don't ask you. What were the cats about? There's two little cats, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Well, 
your man loved cats. They're fantastic cats at Clomet Noise too. And they're quite realistic cats because his animals vary from, I mean, snakes are extraordinary because snakes have got a cat head and a fish's tail, which I think is probably, you know, uh, zoologically unusual. And, uh, but uh, yeah, and, uh, and of course, the cat was so important in Irish life. And that's something which, you know, you'll, you'll know from all the farming expertise, granaries were protected by cats and cats were highly valued. So, you know, the status is, is clear enough, but then people have tried to, as with the Book of Kells, you know, the famous question of the cats and the mice or the rats or whatever, there've been lots of, well, not lots, but quite a number of very learned uh, explanations of what that might mean in kind of theological and other other terms, but I'm afraid I I tend to say, go back to well, well, what would most people see when they see that? They'd see cats, which they all knew, and of course, don't forget the famous poem, Pangaban on cats. So I prefer to look at it not so much as striving for some profound meaning. I'm quite ready to accept that there might be people who would and at the time who had read them in this way but i doubt that was in the mind of the sculptor or in the mind of most of the people who you know who look who looked at them i think that's really interesting and i think you know look at our present culture today with things like twitter and that we mainly use it for sure in cat pictures so <laughs> why not you know when it comes to eye cross um Outside of uh, the beautiful crosses at Monaster Boyce, do you have any particular pet favourites yourself? I'm always taken, as I said, with um, the Can Dunna cross. I just think that the sculpture yeah. there is so unusual yeah. uh, and charming. Uh, are there any that kind yes. of... Yes. But, uh, you know, Can Dunna doesn't have the ring, you see, so I'm not so, you know, I I wouldn't get so worked up. Uh, well, I mean, in many ways, you, you just can't beat Moon, the cross at Moon. And and it's so utterly different from Monaster Boyce. And it's sort of like a different world and a different inspiration. And the fact that there's that sort of geometrical organisation of the figures and the bodies become little squares, which, you know, long ago people realised is taken straight from metalwork. And then that must have been painted up to look like, you know, wonderful, I don't know, enamel plaques or millefiore work or whatever it happens to be, you know, and um, and again, there's something. I mean, there's something incredibly kind of modernist. I'm thinking modernist in the early 20th century, where there were were where something is reduced just to its bare essentials, and so something like the um, the feeding of the five thousand and the or the two small, you know, five loaves and two small fishes, and just five little circles and the two fishes there, bang, you know. Reduce the whole thing to the basic, and it's just so appealingly done. So I think that, and then of course it's in granite, much tougher, and uh, you know, so the shapes have to be. It, it obviously is more difficult to go in for kind of detailed carving, though they haven't made a bad fist of it. I mean, I've I've strongly suspect the same guy was involved at Castle Dermot. And there's a quarry there somewhere in that region, which is producing these big, big blocks, satisfactory blocks. And uh, I, 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 I would think there isn't much difference in date between, between them. But uh, no, so I would give the, probably I'd give my vote to 
moon. moon. No, it's a lovely <laughs> one. I, I always love the depiction of, um, is it the beast at the Day of Judgment or something? It's a very unusual creature. It's such an odd-looking thing. Oh, yeah. I, I really love that one as well. I suppose looking ahead and, and looking at the kind of the future for our high crosses, uh, you know, we've got uh, a number across the country and, and some of it kind of uh, are treated differently. So we have some that are just sitting in their original setting out in all the elements. We have some where there's been light moon that have a perspex roof put above them to protect them from weathering. Uh, others, like Clomet Noise, have been moved inside the visitor centre and a replica put out on site. Um, what sort of uh, key threats are we facing? What kind of steps would you like to see made for them? Would you prefer that some of these works of art are protected and taken away from their immediate context uh, and replaced with replicas? Or, or do you think it's very much a case-by-case kind of basis how, how do you feel in general about the future for high, well, high crosses yeah yeah in general I, I can feel moving them into a museum or visitor center is very much a last resort because as you indicated you just feel the the local context is so important just to be in a henny and look at the hillside and the you know and the, the way the fields slope down to the river you know without that you know, it's part of the the whole, you know, the um, value and reward of actually, you know, of actually of being there. And then one other thing which you lose, and I think this is very important, is the sun. And, you know, the, the great thing about crosses, and anybody who's tried to photograph them will know the only way you can really do it is to be there all day. And, and just watch the sun go round and, and the way as the sun goes round, different panels suddenly burst into light and you see them, the relief sharp, and then they, you know, it goes round the other side. So all that is gone. Though that, of course, could be replicated in museum or visitor centre, and they haven't done that. And, and I think that's, I, th- they have, I have not been there recently, but I think they've done something similar in Iona to do that. But I do feel that that's, that's a big loss. And of course, you can't really replicate it exactly artificially because, you know, the sun is different at different times of the year. And I say in the book that one of the things that, you know, I was most excited or almost moved by was I wanted to take a photograph of the north side of uh, Muradat's Cross which is quite difficult to do because, of course, you've got to wait till the summer. Only in the summer will the light come round on the north face. And then you've got trees um, which are casting a lot of shadow. But, you know, there was about half an hour in which three incredible panels of interlace were just shown up for what they are. And, you know, you don't see that. And I think, um, you know, there are cases where the lighting is very flat. I mean... To be honest, it's terrible at Clombeck Noise, and they must do something about that. And secondly, it, it's easy to be wise after the event, but in Clombeck Noise, I think the spaces are far too small because these are big outdoor monuments and you can't get back very far. And even on a practical level, the numbers who are coming to see it, see them too. And actually, there's even a point there as well 
that um, if you're moving stone, which has been for a thousand years outside, I, I'd be interested. I think the ones inside need to be monitored as carefully as the ones outside because you're changing temperature, you're changing atmosphere. And uh, so it, it, it's not, you know, bringing everything in isn't automatically the best uh, solution. And I was quite heartened uh, when apparently though, this is some years ago, a consultant, a stone consultant looked at the Monaster Boys Crosses and he was pretty impressed by the condition in which they were. Um, though the one thing which is noticeably affecting Monaster Boys is lichen. And, uh, you know, and, and in some of the panels, you just get these white patches and it's so arbitrary and haphazard. It, it, you know, it, I know you look back to photographs 30, 40 years ago um, and it's so different. And then when you get to a Henny, a Henny in Kilkiran, well, it's a scandal. It's a national scandal. They're in an appalling state. And at Kilkiran, there's some sort of, and again, I'm, I'm no botanical specialist, but it, it's, it's white and I assume it's some form of lichen, but it's a much harder crusty lichen, which has grown right up over the base and is now going up uh, the main uh, shaft. And nothing is apparently done about it. And that's not because the locals aren't concerned, they are. Um, I suspect, you know, OPW, maybe resources or maybe it's not very clear what they should do because in days of old, of course, the crosses were sprayed with biocides of one sort or another, uh, which, which for obvious health grounds were, were banned. Um, so, you know, there is a dilemma there, but it's not just that because um, I did a very silly thing at one point, which was I asked the um, uh, colleagues in the botany department in Trinity, how can you get rid of lichen? And that was really equivalent going to somebody who worked in a zoo and saying how do you kill the animals you know they, they lichen is the most marvelous thing in terms of botany and there's a there's a real lichen brigade in england who believe that lichen is part of the history of the stone and the monument and it will help to preserve it now i don't believe in many cases it is helping to preserve it certainly not at kilkieran um because i can see with my own eyes it's not doing that um but it kind of rather defeats the point of why we're preserving the monuments in the first place, because if we want lichen, well, we could look at almost any stone rather than... A... So there are huge issues there, and um, I can understand why the powers that be might be very undecided as to, you know, what, what, what should be done. But I think doing nothing isn't a solution. Um, and, but, I mean, you know Aheni very well, and um, and same with Kilkir and fab both fabulous places. And if they were just replaced by a facsimile, mind you, facsimiles can be very impressive. I mean, not many people at Clonmac Noise now would realise that the cross outside is is. And then there was a very distinguished uh, archaeologist, student of Anglo-Saxon sculpture, who a good few years ago was giving a talk, taking a group around. Um, Cashel, the Rock of Cashel, and uh, gave them a good account and introduced them to the cross at Cashel there. And it was only when he took the group into the little visitor centre that they saw there was another one. And he had been speaking unaware about the uh, the facsimile. So, you know, maybe 
that is the inevitable. But one of the other problems I would have with uh, less museums, particularly visitor centers, they have to be maintained. So huge, huge costs there and people and so on. And access will then be reduced. It'll only be open in the summer or it'll only, and, and that would be a tragedy in many cases. No, you're right, Roger. It's, it's a difficult multi-layered problem and I think it kind of needs a solution which is very collaborative. I'd, I'd love to see, you know, people like yourself, art historians, archaeologists, botanists, you know, the people who are custodians of the site as well, all sitting down and saying, look, this is the issue and let's make a, a series of decisions on this. And at the very least, you know, it, it's been great to see organisations like the Discovery Programme, for example, yeah. or Digital Heritage Age, recording these in 3D. So at least we have yeah. a, a baseline yeah. To, yeah. to measure things like weathering yeah. and, and, and how yeah. that's being impacted if we do but it regularly. I think you're, you're absolutely right there because Scotland has a national body um, which advises on stone and stone monuments. There's nothing like that here. And, um, you know, around the place, there are all sorts of experts in these different areas, as you said, geologists, botanists, and, and we need to draw on experience in other countries, um, which encountering similar, similar problems. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's not as if the resources, and on the whole, you know, these people are working in, Irish institutions and they're free, you know, so why not, you know, have a, take their advice and soundings and they, in many cases, they'll have contacts abroad, which may not be the case, you know, for everybody working in OPW. And I think, you know, the problem is, in a way, it's such a serious issue. It's a national issue for for us. And, um, you know, it's something something really has to be done to expedite. And, and even if, for the sake of argument, nothing can be done at Kilkeeran, so we say, um, we need to know why. You know, it, it should be explained, well, this is what the state... But, but at the moment, everybody living there and, and those who visit, it looks as though they've been completely neglected. And it won't be... I mean, and, and when you think particularly a Henny... Uh, you know, that's part of the whole tourist route, you know, pictures of a henny everywhere. And when, when people from abroad, maybe not so much this year, but actually go there, I think they will be devastated. Yeah, no, you're right, Roger. It, it is a serious issue with high crosses, with our Romanesque churches, with all of this kind yeah. of sculpture that we have. So some kind of strategy and maybe even doing trying different methods at different sites as well to see yeah. what kind yeah. of works. But as you say, hoping that the next generation will wave a magic wand and sort it out. Well, I have talked to, uh, you know, conservation and conservationists working in the private area. And they do, they say there are biocides now which are safe and can be used. Of course, not safe from plants, presumably, because you don't want them to be. But I mean, I suppose in human terms, but... Uh, I mean, it is a, it's, it's a highly controversial. Uh, and, and of course, climate change plays into this too as well. I mean, beyond lichen growth, there's, of course, acid rain and, and yeah. all, all yeah. of these challenges come together. And I think some kind of panel yeah. It, yeah. It, it is needed. And, uh, and, even, and the local environment, because 
I think now I was told that actually if you uh, uh, cleaning up the local environment and getting rid of uh, the fossil fuels might be good on one aspect, but actually they would kill off the lichen. So, you know, <laughs> maybe it was a good idea they put the M1 straight past uh, uh, Master Boyce, or maybe not. <laughs> you see, that's it. It's so hard to keep a balance, you know, and all we can ever do is, is try to. I was at, um, I was at a, a beautiful cross slab, which is a mile or two from Ballyvaughan in County Cork, which is illustrated in all the standard books on early Christian art because it shows it's a slab with a Maltese cross and then there's a little pilgrim walking around the top. So wherever you see a pilgrim walk, the chances are it's the Ballyvaughan carving. But it looks as though he's had a coat of whitewash, which hasn't been applied very well. It's just literally covered. And it's quite good now because you've got, um, I was looking on the web at earlier pictures of it going back 30, 40 years, and you can actually see the progress of the lichen covering. The, as somebody pointed out to me, well, maybe we just should encourage the lichen to finish the job and cover the whole thing so it now becomes white because you can actually probably see the car, you know, they see the, it's an incised car, it's not kind of full relief. But I mean, again, I think, I suspect it's county council who are required to look after that or if anybody. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to know. And I think left to individual stakeholders, it's too big a job. It's too delicate and complex a job, Absolutely. you know. So I, I think we do need to consider a strategy for this as part of, you know, the strategies looking at sites threatened by coastal erosion and and all these other factors that our, our monuments are facing. Um, I suppose outside of that, uh, Roger, I think we, we, we've covered a really interesting <laughs> bit, of, bit of ground there for sure. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to kind of discuss on High Crosses? Oh, wow. Well, it's been great to talk. Uh, we've, we've covered so many areas. We haven't talked very much, I suppose, about where things came from and sources, but that is a much more kind of controversial, rather art historical territory. And iconography was you know, a subject which dominated the study of crosses. And if I've tried to do anything, it's to show that there's more to the crosses than iconography and the actual sub subjects. You know, there's so many more. And one other point I think I would be keen to make is so much of what we talked about is interconnected. So it's the scale of the operation, the engineering, which shows the sort of people who must have been behind it. And when you start looking at them, you can see how they may have dictated or influenced how something was shown. So, you know, we've got to look in a sort of uh, multifaceted way, or at least it's much more rewarding if, if they do. And I think actually it would be great when, you know, tourism really gets going again, if that's the way they could be presented, the scale, how they were built, the engineering, who was doing it, you know. That's it. I suppose with the focus on what they depict instead of how they got to be there, you know, yeah, you, you're only yeah. looking at the very, very tip yeah. of the pyramid and, and you're missing yeah. everything else below it. Yeah. I, I think it's a fascinating subject. And I think your book does a terrific job, actually, of introducing these bigger themes and, you know, the, the people behind them 
as well. You know, I think you get a much stronger sense of what these monuments are. And I think I'll never look at a high cross and just immediately go for the close-up again, you know, in terms of, oh, what's that panel showing and what's that panel showing? I think that bigger picture of the society behind it, the people who commissioned it, the people who worked on it, the engineering that was required to put it into place, I, I, I think... I have a new appreciation for that now. So thank you so much, Roger. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And that's the end of another episode of Amplify Archaeology. I'd just like to thank Roger again. That was absolutely fascinating. I don't think I'll ever look at a high cross the same way again. We've a lot more episodes lined up for the near future, so please do make sure to subscribe. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us to be discovered. Our new membership service, Tour, is now open. If you'd like to dig deeper into the stories of Ireland with online courses, itineraries, lots of information on places to visit, you'll be so welcome to join us. You can subscribe at abartaheritage.ie forward slash tour, T-U-A-T-H-A. Thanks very much and I look forward to joining you again with more episodes from Amplify Archaeology.